I think the Bible does say very clearly, if you marry a good wife, it covers a multitude of sins. So I'm just proving it to be true. Anyway, I find it very easy in my own experience of faith um, to, to arrive at a place where I wish I was better at everything in terms of faith. <clears throat> Do you ever feel like that? That you could take your faith up a couple of notches. I'm not a perfect saint, and at times I, I feel very underqualified um, for this job of saintlyhood. If I think of things like obedience, uh, of fasting, of prayerfulness, of, of depth of wisdom, you name it, I, I honestly feel I can up, upgrade, I can improve myself. I really need to. But if there's one area in particular that I wish above everything else that I could really improve, I'd say that I genuinely wish for more of a relationship with Scripture. Kind of like the characters in the Bible seem to have with their Scriptures. I wish I had more of a relationship with Scripture. When I listen to how those guys in the Bible speak about the Scriptures, I reckon we all agree that that, that relationship that they have with Scripture seems massively significant and formative in who they are as followers of God. And, and, I, and I long for that kind of relationship with Scripture. And I want to just put two passages uh, before you that paint a picture of that kind of relationship. First one is Paul speaking to Timothy. Remember, Paul was a, a pastor in the area. Timothy was his young kind of fledgling, the guy that he was teaching to grow. And this is what he writes to Timothy. But listen particularly for Timothy's relationship with Scripture in what he said here. 2 Timothy 3 verse 15 to 17 says this, From infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed. It emanates from God. It comes from God. It speaks God's heart and desires. And is useful, therefore, for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And it's easy to see Timothy's connection with Scripture in this passage, isn't it? It it was with him right from the start. It says from infancy. Scripture was with him right from the start. And I don't know if that means from when he was a toddler, or if that means from when he first put his faith in Christ, but right from the very beginning, Scripture was with him. And as he walked through life, this life of faith, Scripture would describe everything that was crucial for a faith in Jesus. It would spell out that path for him. It would be his close companion. When he needed it, Scripture would step in and teach him. At other times, Scripture would come in and rebuke him or train him as a Christian. And the end product, as that verse says, was that he would be absolutely equipped for the life Jesus was calling him to. What an awesome point to arrive at. But it only came because of his relationship with Scripture, equipped to live a life for Jesus. And I long for a relationship with Scripture like that. The psalmist, the oak that wrote the psalms, paints a similar picture. One day we find him sitting back. Imagine, he's sitting back, thinking about the role of Scripture in his life. Have you ever done that? 
Have you ever taken a moment to try and verbalize and put into words or sentences a description that describes your relationship with Scripture? Maybe some of us have taken the time to do that about our wife or our husband, boyfriend or girlfriend, to describe explicitly that relationship through a poem or something, a letter or something like that. Have you ever done that about Scripture? That's where we find the psalmist in this moment. Listen to what he says. Chapter 19, verse 7 to 10. He says, sitting back, he says, The revelation of God is whole, and it pulls our lives together. The signposts of God are clear, and they point out the right road. The life maps of God are right, showing the way to joy. The directions of God are plain and easy on the eyes. The decisions of God are accurate down to the nth degree. God's word is better than a diamond. Better than a diamond set between emeralds. You'll like it better than strawberries in spring. Better than red, slightly wet and fatty biltong. It says that in the original. And, And I want a relationship. I want a relationship with Scripture like this guy where his trust is so implicit in Scripture, so real. Let's recognize that their example, these guys in Scripture, their high view of Scripture, that magic relationship that they had with God's Word, is meant to challenge us and our lifestyles and our choices. Their standards are meant to reflect into our lives. That's why we've been given a record of their lives and experiences, so that it spills over into our lives. Not so. Their conclusions, the lessons they've learned, the values that they've built their life on and their faith on, need to in some way become our starting points. If we to learn from those guys what they found to be true, many of us need to adopt and pursue in our faith as truth. Ideally, their perspectives become our starting points, if that makes sense. That's the right order of things when we read the passages of Scripture. Truthfully, though, that's just not how it seems to work. Uh, To put it frankly, I think many of us start with some serious baggage when we consider picking up the Bible to read it. We don't start with this powerful view of Scripture that the writers possess. Now, our attempts at reading Scriptures are often crippled long before we even pick up the Bible. Because our expectations of the Bible are simply so shocking. So whether we like it or not, we expect it to be powerless before we pick up the Bible. We expect it to be irrelevant and boring, saying nothing about our lives. And I wonder, I wonder what bias you or I possess as we approach Scripture and that taints our experience of God's Word. What bias is there somewhere in your heart that limits your experience of God's Word? I wonder what inclination is running around in the blind spots of our lives and that's effectively emptying our experience of Scripture before we've even picked up the Bible. Remember, bias is a tendency to lean in a certain direction, often to the detriment of an open mind. Those who are biased tend to believe what they want to believe rather than listening to opinions of others or even the facts in front of them. And so if we bring a bias to our reading of Scripture, it's going to have an impact in how we read the Bible. 
had a bit of fun looking at the number of biases that are out there. And maybe as I go through one or two of these, you'll find yourself in, one, in the light of one of them. Um, three examples of, of, the, of, this, of, of biases that are out there. Now, there are many more. I think the article that I read mentioned about 12 different kinds of biases, and I'm sure that's not even a complete list. But the first one, the first bias that these guys picked up on is the bias of neglecting probability. The bias of neglecting probability. This is where I won't believe what's actually probable. I'd rather believe what I think is probable. Okay? So, for instance, very few of us have a problem getting into a car and going for a drive. Right? But many of us experience massive levels of anxiety at the thought of getting onto an airplane and going for a flight somewhere. And that may be obvious because, well, flying is an unnatural thing and uh, seemingly very dangerous. And yet virtually all of us know the fact that the probability of dying in a car accident is much, in a car is much higher, sorry, the fact that the probability of dying in a car accident is much higher than getting killed in a plane accident. So statistically we have a 1 in 84 chance of dying in a car accident compared to a one in a 10,000 chance of dying in a plane accident. I think I've got these back to front, don't I? Anyway, I don't know how they got to these things, but the chances of you dying in a plane are much less, much, much less than a car. And yet our bias will always leave us with a sense that flying is more dangerous. That's what a bias does. That's the power of a bias that sometimes lives in our hearts. So that's the, that's the first one. Then there's the current moment bias, where we believe that this moment must be treated more differently than any other moment we ever will experience in the future. The stat that explains this bias the best is captured in a study that was done in 1998. It showed that when making fruit choices for the coming week, 74% of participants chose fruit to be part of the diet. But when the choice was for the current day, 70% chose chocolate. Yeah, guilty laughs all over the congregation. I'll live for the pleasure of now and leave the pain to be dealt with later. It's called the current moment bias. I'll live differently now than what I will when I know what the future looks like. And then there's the status quo bias. And I think of these, all of these, this is the one I'm the most guilty of. The status quo bias. We humans tend to be apprehensive of change. We're scared of change. Which often leads us to make decisions to guarantee that things remain the same. And so this will have an impact on everything. Our, our view on politics, economics, relationships, religion. We like to stick to our routines and our favorite meals and our favorite res uh, restaurants. We stick to the same things. Part of the ugliness of this bias is the crazy assumption that a different choice will inevitably be inferior to our current choice. The status quo bias can be summed up by saying, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. I want to stay the same, and I will do what I can to keep it like that. That's the bias. So fun as they are... I'm sure we can also see the danger that comes with these kinds of mental blocks in our lives when we genuinely try to engage Scripture. So if these or other biases could be lurking somewhere in the dark recesses of our mind, somehow wrecking our experience of reading Scriptures, I suspect they do for many of us, how on earth do we counter the threat? 
How do we stop them playing such a powerful role in how we process Scripture? Well, I think it has everything to do with making sure that our approach to Scripture is more intentional. To be more intentional about how we approach Scripture. I want to offer to you just two images that I think has helped me many times over in my approach to Scripture and try to keep me healthy and try to coach me in terms of how I handle Scripture. And hopefully, it may play a similar role to you. And just one quick qualification before, before I get into these two, um, two images that have coached my approach to Scripture. I want to say that all images used to explain the things of God are imperfect in some way or another. These are no different. The, the, these images will be helpful to a point. Hopefully you'll find them helpful to a point. And then we begin to run into the imperfections and I'll freely acknowledge that they are not completely perfect images. So the first one, the first image that I want to point to you is actually busy lurking underneath this, this charcoal cover here. And it is a snake. And I sincerely hope it is still under that cover. <laughs> it's not a very big snake. Um... And my intention in a few moments is to invite my, Rob, my friend, uh, the snake handler, to come up and, and introduce me to the snake, for me to handle the snake. Um, I've only done that once in my life before, in a previous sermon where I actually preached around this, this point uh, uh, previously. It was scary back then, and already I can feel my heart rate going up, just at the thought of handling the snake. Now let me just add quickly, I know that for some people, snakes have an evil feeling about them. Maybe because your childhood Bible had a picture of a snake in the Garden of Eden, and ever since it's you know, been connotated to evil. Maybe you've had family members that have told you explicitly snakes are evil. Maybe you've had a bad experience with snakes. I don't know. Please understand that nowhere in the Bible are we called to hate snakes. It may have been a, a form that Satan took at that time, but that certainly doesn't mean that every time we see a snake, that snakes are Satan in bodily form and um, you know, evil incarnate. I do understand that this is a little bit of a thing for some people, but please, I'm asking you, just listen to me for a few moments and hear why I would relate this experience to Bible reading in some way. All right. By the way, just, just as a separate topic, personally, I think the serpent in the garden was a gecko. Those things are truly evil. I mean, that transparent weird look, and when they jump at you so aggressively, yeah, look. So in, in, in what way could a snake possibly be helpful in our approach to Scripture? Well, truth be told, it's not the snake per se. That's helpful. It's my approach to the snake that helps me, this and any other snake that I've ever encountered. It's my approach to the snake. I honestly find that there needs to be parallels in my approach to Scripture. See, as I walk closer to the cage just now, closer to the snake, the key aspect about that approach is that I am, and I think it's a very healthy thing, I am intimidated by that moment. I'm intimidated by this encounter. I have a very real sense that I'm not totally in control of what could happen in the next couple of moments. I realize that in this kind of encounter, I'm not the dominant party. As I, say, as I am, say, if I was approaching a little puppy. 
if that snake or another snake that I approach decides to turn on me, I've no doubt that it can impact my life very deeply. The animal in that box has the ability to affect my life. And so I approach it carefully and respectfully with an element of fear and trepidation in the mix. So I'm going to ask Rob to come up now. Rob, won't you come and join me up front here um, and introduce us to this, this snake, introduce me to the snake. Rob has a hobby of, of collecting venomous snakes. This one is not a venomous snake. This is called a ball python. It's about a meter long, I think, more or less. And he assures me that it's very docile, except when there's been loud music in the mix. Fortunately, there's been no loud music. <laughs> Once you bring the ball snake. So what happens is it's called a ball snake. Ball python, sorry, ball python. There you go. <laughs> because when it's defensive, it rolls into a little ball. And it's more like a figure eight now, so it's actually quite relaxed. Eh? He's quite relaxed. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 you're not going anywhere, bud. Okay. So that's a snake, all right? This is not a venomous snake. He, he told me it's quite placid, and so I'm more relaxed than what I, I, I probably could be. But nevertheless, it is a snake. And thank you, Rob, for your great input there. <laughs> Take it out of here. We very intentionally, for those that are concerned, we very intentionally going to get the snake out of the house. All right, so you can relax and listen to the rest of that sermon. Thanks, Rob. Appreciate it. <clears> that <throat> wasn't that scary at the end of the day, fortunately. But, folks, the bottom line, the point I'm trying to make here is that carefulness that instinctively comes to us when we see or approach a snake, that carefulness, I truly believe that at times our approach to Scripture deserves the same. Here's what it looks like in the Bible. There's a precious moment that some of the disciples of Jesus experienced while walking with him on a, moment, on a mountain one day. Listen to what it says. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my Son, whom I love. With Him I am well pleased. Listen to Him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell face down on the ground. They were terrified, but Jesus came and touched them. Get up, He said. Don't be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. Look, that initial response of reverence is nothing less than beautiful in its appropriateness. This is God after all. There's nothing inappropriate about falling on our face before Him in reverence and respect for Him. It's only inappropriate if we stayed there because remember, Jesus invited them up from their position. Remember, an encounter with Scripture, an encounter with the Bible, is nothing less than an encounter with God's Word. His Word is breathed into Scripture. His Word is sharper than a two-edged sword. You don't go playing around with a knife or with a, or with a sword that's sharp. You don't do that. His Word is sharper than that. It will lead us, hopefully, to some major confrontations with our life choices. 
handled correctly, Scripture will interrogate us. As that passage said, it will teach us, it will correct us, it will rebuke us. Handled correctly, our mind, our understanding, our values, our experiences, our perspectives are challenged and hopefully brought to kneel before the living God. And so at times, it provokes a familiar falling down on our knees before the Lord kind of response. It's not always a safe thing to read God's Word if our desire is simply to have more of the same in our life. Where old things are echoed over and over again. If you haven't experienced the fear of encountering God's word to you, I think you're reading scripture wrong. If you haven't at times sensed the massiveness and eternity of our God behind the words of scripture, possibly you're approaching scripture wrong. God's heart is in those words. God's thoughts are in those stories. So let's be careful to approach those words with humility and respect, or you could miss the beauty and immensity of an incredible God that has spoken those words into life. The second image, John, if you can just help me, the second image that has lingered with me, hopefully that first one helps a little bit. Approaching Scripture is kind of like approaching a snake. Let's be careful. It can affect our lives deeply. Second image that has lingered with me for many years is found in a Rembrandt painting. We're also going to have it up on the screen. In a Rembrandt painting that I discovered a while back. I've spoken a number of times to people about this. Maybe it's just a good reminder. In fact, I was so impressed by it that I now have a copy of it hanging in my office. Um, it is just a copy. It's not the original. Painting is called The Philosopher in Meditation. The Philosopher in Meditation. And Rembrandt, we must remember, had this amazing ability to preach powerful sermons through his artwork. We're going to have a look at this piece just to see what it has to say. And what we have here very basically is a fairly elderly fellow, more or less John's age, sitting next to a pile of books underneath a window. Next to him is a stairwell heading up to a second story in the building. And in the far corner, if you can go back to the main one, please, Tina, if you can go back to the main picture again. In the far corner, bottom right-hand corner, you see a lady busy stoking a little fire. Now, apparently, there's a third person standing up at the top of the stairwell, but I'm my painting doesn't reflect it. It's just too dark. That's just to be accurate to what was happening in this painting. But here's my understanding of the sermon that Rembrandt was preaching through this, sermon, through this uh, painting. For Rembrandt, a house at times would symbolize man. But the inside of the house, which is what, what, he, what we're encountering in this picture, represents the soul of a man, the soul journey of a man, the inner dynamics of a man. And so what we have here is we capture a glimpse into a moment of meditation. It's a moment rich with thoughtfulness and contemplation. Represented by that main character quietly sitting with his hands folded, considering possibly some of the truths he was exposed to in those books of his. And it's so easy, I think you'd agree with me, it's so easy to see that he's deep in thought. 
And that's what the theme of this painting is all about, this act of reflection. But we also can't avoid seeing the stairwell. It's a major chunk of the painting. This symbolizes the next level of our understanding of our existence, of our being, that we are all constantly pursuing. We all love an upgrade, and in a sense, that's what these stairs represent. The way to the next level, a better future. In this instance, however, the upgrade is directly related again to the soul journey. We want our soul, don't we? We want our soul soul to be elevated, to be enlightened, to be deepened in some way. I think that's common to everyone sitting here today. That's why you're at church. If I understand this dynamic of coming to church correctly, you came here hoping that something happens here, either through the singing as we expose to an incredible God and the worship there, or the chatting as we connect with other people that know and understand our lives, or maybe through the preaching, you're hoping that something happens here that lifts our soul out of the rubbish that often characterizes normal living, that lifts us higher. That's what we're hoping for here. If the worship is excellent and we glimpse God, and our soul is elevated to genuine worship, or if the sermon is particularly inspiring, some of us in the language of this painting would say, yeah, we climbed that stairwell today. It was such a great service. If that doesn't happen, all you have is a man sitting in a chair looking bored out of his mind, which, let's be honest, sometimes happens in church as well. But here's the key aspect about this painting. Key aspect, most of the painting is smothered in darkness. Equally, our soul is full of struggles and questions and doubts, brokenness and sin, which at times can become quite overwhelming and depressing. But the darkness in this painting is combated by those two sources of light. On the one hand, we have this little sad excuse of a fire being stoked by the woman in the corner. It's a man-made light. Completely limited and weak, barely extending past the person that is stoking the fire. In fact, it's so weak that we can't even see that side of the stairwell. Its light is, to say blandly, quite pathetic. This stands in opposition to the other source of light in the picture that streams through the window, filling the the room with warmth and perspective and meaning. Make no mistake, this is a God light, a God-given light, which alone seems to light the path to the next level. And folk, it's in this powerful combination of this man's thoughtfulness partnered with a beautiful, powerful, majestic light that God has provided, which pictures for me the potential of what may happen when we settle down to grapple with and consider the words of God. It's a powerful moment. Folk, I mustn't be fooled into thinking, man, I'm clever enough, or I'm charming enough, I'm influential enough, or impressive enough to create enough light to make my life a success. That is effectively what we're saying when we steer clear of reading the scriptures. Don't worry, don't stress, I've got this. Look, I've made a bit of light. I've got a bit of insight. I know how things work. Don't worry, I've got this covered. And I'll keep my back to that other light. The one that that shines on everything. I don't really need that light. 
I think this painting depicts so clearly how foolish that approach is. So can we accept that the greatest works of our lives, if we were honest as we look back in our lives, the most meaningful achievements of our existence, the highest points of our understanding, the deepest wisdom that we've ever been able to achieve are not achieved absent from God, but in response to His light and the pause that He has shown us. So unlike the snake, this is a much more friendly image. No mistake. But the truth that I take from this painting is simply this. Whatever our situation is right now, our hunger for greater depth and significance can be found in a moment like this. We can find growth We can find greater depth and meaning. We can find hope. We can find an improved character in this moment where meditation and God's revelation meet. And so I will discipline myself time and again to approach God's with a belief that in some way, as I settle down to read Scripture, In some way, whatever my circumstances, in some way I will be offered a chance to climb the stairs as I grapple and consider God's Word. Just to wrap up, I don't want to spend the rest of my life battling to convince myself that God exists. Battling to convince myself that He loves me, that He's a plan for me and for my family. I don't want to convince myself of these things. I honestly believe that a major part of that is actually God's responsibility. To speak these things into my being. I don't want to spend the rest of my Christian life trying to pull myself up, myself up by my own shoestrings, hoping that my character and my weakness and my blind spots will be solved by just a little bit more effort. I don't want to spend the rest of my Christian life unchanged. You know, the rest of my Christian life unchallenged in my thinking and unmoved in my passions or unshakable in my rock-solid and supposedly watertight outlook on life. Hanging on with a death grip to the understanding of faith that I received as a teenager or when I was much, much younger. I don't want to just stay there. And there is a type of Christianity that looks like that. It's a Christianity that has become very basically a belief system that doesn't regularly require authentic moments with the Almighty. It's just an impersonal belief system. For people that live this kind of faith, reading the Bible has one main role, and that is to reinforce that belief system. To confirm again and again that they're right. It's not about hearing. It's not about engaging with or from the one that still wants to mold and shape who we are and how we live. Folk, I don't want a faith that is simply a belief system, and I hope you don't either. I want a faith that touches the supernatural. I want a faith that hears those disarming whispers of God reaching deep into my soul, teaching and rebuking and correcting and training me for life and righteousness in this world, in this country, in my home and in this life. Even after four decades of walking with Him. 
I want a faith in a God that pushes back at me, that draws me in, that enfolds me with love and hope. I want a faith that is alive and well, for goodness sake. Like I think it's true to say that this will never be achieved if our approach to the Bible is flippant, unexpected, bored, and completely predictable, or altogether shunned. Settling down to read Scripture is meant to be an encounter with Almighty who looks back into our soul and invites us upward. Very simply, very simply, the takeaway from the sermon this week is I'm asking you to be acutely aware of what you expect to find or hear before you pick up the Bible in your readings this coming week. Just take a moment, pause, put yourself in neutral before you get into reading Scripture and just say, what am I expecting in these moments? And although this isn't a watertight rule, my guess is, my guess is what you deeply expect out of the reading of Scripture is what in fact you'll find at the end of the day. Let's just pray together quickly. The picture comes to mind of an aeroplane that's just about a land and that approach is absolutely crucial to pull this landing off well. If the approach isn't accurate, if the approach isn't correct and well calculated, the landing could, go disaster, could be disastrous. Lord, help us to approach your word in a way that enhances our reading of your word and our listening to what you have to say. Help us to be wise, Lord God, to be reverent and careful as we come to listen to what you have to say about us, to be open to, to you interrogating our lives and our standards and our positions. Help us to be open to that. Help us also, Lord God, to expect you to speak us to the next level in whatever fa- way we're facing, in whatever circumstance we're facing. Guide us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.